Hey guys, it's Dr. Boca from Unpolished Therapy. Today we have a special guest, Ethan Penner, who is the founder and managing partner of Mosaic. He's been a leader in the U.S. real estate finance industry for over three decades. And get this, is widely recognized as a pioneer of the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. Because of his tremendous impact in the real estate and finance industry, he was selected as one of the real estate industry's 65 living legends by Real Estate Forum in 2011. He has had numerous successes with over $40 billion in originations of commercial real estate. We'll put all the details in the episode notes. We don't even have to go into all of the amazing accomplishments because what is so important today is that he wrote a book called Greatness is a Choice. And we're interviewing him today to talk about it as he has eloquently penned a treasure trove of thoughts and ideas that's going to inspire you to achieve a higher level of awareness and critical thinking. His writing is invaluable to anyone with the courage to challenge their intellect and adopt new ideas and think deeply about their choices. He looks at relationships, kindness, respect, family, faith, legacy, and he challenges us to see the interconnection between a wide range of ideologies, things like economics, politics, faith, finance, nature, and music. In reading his greatness is a choice, you're going to discover ways to think about and define personal success. It is a must read for anyone who wants to create a better life for themselves and the legacy they leave for the future. And with that said, let's start Unpolished Therapy and welcome Ethan Pinner. What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. It's Rachel Silvercone, so you know what that means. We are here on the corner of Audacity and Advice, where we have ditched the couch, grabbed the mics, and we are breaking down all the unpolished wreckage. I am here with the one and only DB, Dr. Boca, my favorite doctor of all. And we have an exciting show today, so let's get right to it. Good morning, Dr. Boca. Good morning, Rach. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited that Ethan Penner is here today, who is the author of Greatness is a choice. And oh, so, so no pun intended with that we're doing great, right? We are doing great. And that's because we read the book that Ethan wrote. It was perfect. So without further ado, I want to start this interview with Ethan. So welcome, Ethan. How are you? And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. We are so excited to get down and dirty on greatness as a choice. And I have to tell you, well, I have to tell our listeners at least, in full disclosure, Ethan is a good friend now of my husband's, but was a boss many, 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 many moons ago in the real estate business. And the second that I heard that he had written a book, as you guys have all heard his bio already, you know that you are amongst somebody who really is an icon. And I said to my husband, I have to read the book, half fearing that it was going to be about commercial real estate and mortgages and investments and finance and all the stuff that I don't understand anything about. And I was so, so pleasantly surprised to read this book. So Ethan, can you share with our listeners a little bit about the book and a little bit about how you got to the point to write this book? 
Well, I had always had it in me, or for a long time, that it would be really cool to have a family heirloom where generationally ideologies and experiences that form those ideologies could be shared with descendants. I dreamed, for example, of having something like that in my life for my ancestors and how treasured that would be if I had that, you know, if I had that from 500 years ago, imagine sure. any of us, how incredible would that be, right? Be our most treasured possession because, you know, we are the genetic kind of, we've been influenced genetically by our ancestors, but we don't really have a connection with them and an ideological understanding of how we've been formed. And, and I think we, everyone's kind of influenced by things we don't even know, right? And so I thought, well, I can't create the past, but I can definitely do it for my descendants. And so I always had this idea that I would do something like that. I'm a very big note taker. I use my phone whenever I have an idea or some insight, I'll write it down in my notes section on my phone. So my notes section on my phone is pretty full all the time with <laughs> ideas. And one day about uh, Christmas of 2000, it was actually December 15th. I know because it was 10 days before Christmas. My daughter, who was a high school senior then, and I were having breakfast. And she said to me, well, what are you buying my uncle and his family who were the only ones coming over for that COVID Christmas? And it was 10 days before. And I, I hate buying Christmas presents for adults. And it was mm -hmm. about four adults and one little kid. And I said to her, you know what? I'm going to buy the kid, of course a bunch of presents, but I, I hate buying sweaters or being bought sweaters for, it just doesn't make sense. Right. So I said, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to give them the book. And I may have used a four letter word in there too. <laughs> and um, she laughed and said, well, you know, it's 10 days before Christmas. When are you going to write the book? And I said, I'm going to write it literally right after breakfast. She oh never believed that I would do that. Oh my God. Four hours later, she came back to that same table for lunch and I said, I'm done. She goes, what do you mean you're done? And I said, I wrote 100 pages and 65 chapters in four hours. Wow. And she read it. And, you know, give me that, she said, because it was on my computer. And she looked at it. And that was the first version of that book. And again, I didn't intend to publish any of it. I thought I'm writing it. I'm fulfilling my ideas of writing a book for my, my descendants, sharing it with family. And then when I went to try to get it printed, most printers said they couldn't do it in a span of nine days before Christmas. <laughs> One person said they could do it, but they said the minimum run would be 100 copies. So I said, sure, print 100 copies. They did not deliver it, even though they promised me they would, until for Christmas, but it came in March. Uh, and I got 100 copies of that first version, which uh, I ended up sharing with friends. I, I might have actually, I'm pretty sure I gave one to Tony as well. And so there's a... There's a bunch of people who have that first version, which was a raw Ethan shortcut, shorthand idea of this book. And the feedback I got was amazing, really inspiring. I didn't expect it. And I thought, well, maybe this could be valuable to people outside of my family. And it seemed that it was. And so I was inspired to think about how do I reposition the book in a way that someone who didn't know me might buy. So I, I spent about a year just pondering it. I really didn't do anything. I just thought about it. And then I had an idea. I rewrote the book or repositioned it, edited it, changed its approach, changed the title, printed another hundred, send them out into the world. And a friend of mine, Tony Robbins, who you've heard of, I'm sure, and your readers have heard of. No, never. 
So Tony had a few books written and published, and he's a friend, and his son is a close friend, and his son works with him and, among other things, helped him kind of publish his books, and they like my book. And unbeknownst to me, he gave it to his literary agent who liked it. Unbeknownst to me, he gave it to his publisher. Publisher liked it. And then I got this cold email saying, we want to sign you and you know pay you, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, this is miracle you know like then i didn't expect it and then that led to a further polishing they assigned an editor to me and said we love your book but you had never written a book before and there's ways to extract more value from this and i said the only precondition is these words have to all be mine so the editor can coach me but i'm going to write every word and, and it took about six more months to literally polish every page every paragraph and make it as good as it could be and i'm really proud of what came out and the feedback has been really really cool so ethan if i could just jump in for a minute i do think that you should be proud it was a great book dr book Mm -hmm. and i both read it and it's sort of been like our little mini bible if you will (laughs) two things i want to say to that number one i wonder if most of the nuggets of wisdom that you share in the book were already scrolling through the notes that you had taken over the course of time that it kind of just naturally manifested into something that you were just able to create in in one space to share with the world and number two as you were telling the the process of how the book came to light, the first thing that I thought of that I bet the listeners would agree is like, wow, that's so lucky, right? And Dr. Boga and I have talked a lot about the fact that like, do we make our own luck or does luck follow those who are disciplined, have a strong belief system, have value and rituals and stick to a routine? And I thought that maybe you could touch on that a little bit because a lot of those nuggets are some of the chapters in your book. So I guess what I'm saying is, where does luck fit into all of that? You know, one of the things about my book is that I think once you've read my book, you can answer those questions as though you were me. You know the answer already. So uh, by I suppose I'm answering it for the, your listeners because I know you yes. know it, which <laughs> yes. is because it's very clear. One of the things about my book is it's it's pretty clear. You know what I mean? I think that there's not much vagueness because I don't believe in vagueness. And I think I was able to communicate ideology very concisely and very, very clearly. And that's something I'm very happy about. The answer to your question, of course, is, well, can I answer it with a, a story from my childhood? Of course. We so love it. I was very fortunate to have good teachers as parents. And uh, even though my parents were divorced when I was eight, they both had a, a profound influence on me as teachers. And I think that's the role. I've always been a teacher. I think in my career, I've been a teacher. I think that we are all teachers all the time. And we're all learners all the time, right? Those are the roles mm-hmm. we play, I think, in every facet of our life. I remember a lot. I have a good memory. And my kid, my 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 parents taught me when we're just talking about religion, I was born and grew up Jewish, that God helps those who help themselves, right? And you got to take the first step. So I say that's the answer to your question. If you're sitting on the couch waiting for a miracle to hit you, Mm. it ain't going to hit you, okay? You have to actually have an action step. You have to get off the couch. You have to go do something. And then you put yourself in a position for God to help you, uh, a.k.a get lucky, whatever that means, right? Mm-hmm. And so you cannot get lucky unless you actually are willing to uh, express yourself into the world and 
and expend energy, right? That's the beginning of it. Can I do a follow-up before, Dr. Brooke? I know you want to jump in, but just to <laughs> The Jewish now, one. I want to ask about the Jewish part. Okay. Well, and I wonder if it'll be the same thing. But the follow-up on that is, if you're saying you have to get up and, and take the first step, which makes perfect sense, even though I did read the book cover to cover and then read it again to try to prepare for today's conversation, what I don't know the answer to, though, is... What was the impetus that made you way back when, before you were this living legend that you call yourself, what was the impetus that made you make that change in your life? Because I don't know the answer to that. Right. Well, I think I struggled with how to order the chapters in my book. That was a big struggle because there's a, a, quite a few chapters that I adore. Mm-hmm. And I landed on a chapter that I don't necessarily would say I adore. I would say it's the most important chapter, and that's why it's the first one because it's the start. It's the start of everything in life, and it's the start. It's the answer to this question. I learned from my mother primarily, and how she parented me, that self-esteem is the root of everything good, and the absence of self-esteem is the root of everything not good. And so, it made I made this chapter the first chapter for that very reason because. It's, it's the essential ingredient to living any form of fulfilling life. And I think it's also the biggest hole in our society today. And, and it's not because people don't even have self-esteem. They don't even know what it is. You know what I mean? We, mm-hmm. We're so caught up in our society, especially it's exacerbated by technology and social media, chasing the esteem of others. Our whole country from probably, and there's there's a history to this, based back to the 1950s, but our whole country is kind of based on an envy-driven society mm-hmm. and chasing the other person's accomplishments and being envious of what they have and what they've done. And, and there's a bitterness that comes with that. And most importantly, there's no way to achieve any level of self-esteem when you're looking externally, where you're trying to like mimic or achieve other people's uh, achievements. And so I wrote that as the first chapter, and it's the answer to your question. I think that my mother was a very smart woman. She was a great teacher. And I'll just tell you how how she did it. I'll give you a good example. So from the time I could remember, like a little, little kid, I, when I talk about little, I mean, I could speak, okay? Mm-hmm. My mother, I was her confidant. She would take me aside. We would have time together. She spoke to me as an adult, she would share with me her adult life and her adult challenges, and then ask me for my opinion. How can I advise her in those things? From the time I could remember, like little kid, and then on through my teenage years, and we would have adult conversations. And from the time I was little, whatever I would say, she would say, that's a really good, you know, of course she must've known, you know, like I was surprising her any brilliance, but she would make me feel proud that my brain was working that I was articulating something reasonably good for that age. And I learned how to look at myself with self-esteem from those conversations. So it stemmed right from there. And it's so interesting. And I appreciate that because I honestly didn't know that. And now having read the book, I'm using that as sort of the foundation Mm -hmm. to kind of have gotten into your head on this. Yeah. And it's so interesting, Ethan, because as a psychologist, right, we'll listen to somebody's story and we'll make this 
if you're going textbook, right, you see these people, they get divorced at eight years old, or you hear that a parent uses their child as a confidant, and you're like, mm, what about boundaries, all the psychological stuff that we learn. And here, this is such a, a wonderful reminder that you can't just hear somebody's story and judge it, right? You, we don't want to judge anybody, but we do, certainly don't want to judge it because there is something about that mirroring. There is something about an adult listening to their child and giving them positive feedback that does nurture the soul. It does nurture the self-esteem. It does give them the confidence to be able to understand that they are a good person. They're a helpful person. They have a good working brain and all of those things. So I think that is so very important as a professional to hear somebody you know, say that back, and I'm sure to our listeners as well. I do want to go backwards for one second and kind of tie all the loose ends together from reading your book. It sounded in the book like you were obviously born Jewish and sort of raised Jewish, but it wasn't as much of a center of your life as it was or appears to be now. You've mentioned that some there are some rituals on your Friday nights that was always a positive thing and as you brought your family into uh, where they are today. But when did Judaism become such a strong north for you or such a strong anchor for you? And do you think you could have been great without it? My father is a rabbi, was, he passed away. Oh, I did and, not know that from the book either. Sorry. So for the first eight years before my parents were divorced of my life, I grew up in the home of a rabbi. Mm. And my mother who was a spiritual seeker and quite learned in Judaism and spoke Hebrew fluently and all that stuff, uh, was a renegade. So, you know, my father had to play the role, even though my father's a pretty good free thinker, but my father had a congregation and a role to play, and it was the 1960s, and, you know, he played it very straight, right? So my house mm -hmm. was kosher, and I went to yeshiva, all that stuff, right? And then my parents were divorced when I was eight, and about three months into my new life without my father in the house when i ordered from the local italian restaurant i ordered what i always ordered which was eggplant parmesan <laughs> and my my mother said well you know you can order veal parmesan if you want <laughs> and i said really mm. she goes yeah you can and i so i did and i've never looked back since. <laughs> See, there are some bright sides of divorce Absolutely. Um, yeah, I hope my kids are listening because my kids were eight and 10 when I got divorced. So I'm like, I'm loving all this because, you know, yeah. who knows? Maybe my kids well, are the next Ethan Penner. <laughs> I mean, everyone can be who they want to be. And I yeah. think my book is about inspiring people to be the best version of themselves and know that that's great. Like greatness isn't about, I want to be Ethan. I want to be Michael Jordan. I want to be who. It's like, you know what? You could be your own version of that. And that's going to be the greatest thing ever. So so I hope I do a good job of that and through my book and communicating that greatness is a very personal and very, very unique thing for each individual. And it's available to everyone every minute of every day and in their life, of course. So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I well, I, I just want to I, uh, let you know, I, it's, I don't think it's even a question, but the appreciation of I could tell in reading the book and specifically in the chapter that you wrote about honoring ancestors and your legacy which is interesting because that's how we started this conversation. But of all your chapters, Ethan, that was the longest, like the literal number of pages. Right. And that was something that I appreciated because it really did speak to the importance and the value and 
and the no nonsense that without that, like your anchor of family and legacy and the lessons you've learned and how you're now paying it forward to others, it was just something that spoke to me. And I wanted to be acknowledged because one of the other chapters in your book was an entire chapter devoted to how people just completely have no idea what's going on and they don't pay attention to anything. So just I wanted to tell you that. Well, I think that my book is, and I've always felt that I'm good at this and perhaps I kind of would say it's my calling, is to enhance the awareness of people with whom I come in contact with, whether it be mm-hmm. people I work with or people that I transact with or, or people I teach in school, I teach in school. I do think that I was honed very well by my parents and by my ancestors to have certain skills, awareness being one of them. And I think that that's a little bit uncommon in the world. And I, But I think it's available, right? Everyone can choose to do that. So Maybe I'll jump back to the Jewish question because I was in the middle of that and then maybe weave that into the ancestors thing. But you're right. The observation, you're right. The, I know the longest chapter word-wise is the one about honoring your ancestors and your legacy. And I think, man, that's so important. On the Jewish thing, like most people who were introduced to any form of religion young, there's always that rebellious moment mm-hmm. where like, this isn't really for me. Unless you are living in an ultra-Orthodox community, and whether it be Jewish or you know how they live in um, in Pennsylvania and Dutch mm-hmm. country, you know, where you can't get away from it because literally everyone's jamming it hard. So I didn't live in that community. My mother allowed me to eat veal parmesan when I was eight, <laughs> and uh, and I grew up in a non-Jewish, you know, non-observant world in Yonkers, in the streets of Yonkers, New York. So I had the freedom, even though I went to a yeshiva through ninth grade. And I learned unbelievable things in that in that educational path. I never really felt like a practitioner of ritual Judaism. I felt like an observer and a practitioner of ethical Judaism, right? I think mm-hmm. it's a great ethical standing. And I've conducted myself as an ethical Jew my whole life. But I never thought that there's value in practical religious expression of Judaism. Like I just wasn't interested in it. It just mm-hmm. I felt like I got the best out of it being an ethical Jew, but not necessarily a practicing Jew. Mm-hmm. And, and as I write in the book about mm-hmm. uh, now it's five or six years ago, I had an, a born again experience. You know, I went to a bar mitzvah by myself. My wife didn't join me. And the words in the prayer book literally spoke to me. It was as though God, I felt that God was speaking to me in certain words. I wish I could remember the prayer specifically, but but words that I had recited you know, because I went to Yeshiva, I prayed every day. I knew the prayer book backwards and forwards in Hebrew by heart, even to this day, you know, 40 something years later. And that's how ingrained it was in mm-hmm. me. So, but I realized that I had never prayed with any awareness. Like here I am, Mr. Awareness. Mm-hmm. I had never practiced Judaism. Of course, I had only practiced it as a kid. And let me tell you, kids are not that aware usually, especially <laughs> teenage boys. But I never, I always kind of prayed with an eye towards when is this over rather than what am I saying? Even though I understood Hebrew, I never even thought of what I was saying. And that was the first time. And I came home and my wife, who was not raised Jewish, but in a weird story, turns out to be Jewish. And I married her thinking she was Catholic. But that's oh, a whole wow. Other, that's a whole other podcast. podcast. <laughs> a whole other weird story. But anyhow, or the book for that matter. 
<laughs> she said to me, you know, you're a rabbi son. I've always been telling you, you should pray every day as part of your heritage. And so I thought, well, maybe she's right. And I opened the prayer book and I kind of started to think about a ritual that I can follow every morning. And I found, and I curated within that prayer book more out of the, right out of the prayer book, morning prayer ritual that I adhere to and have every single day since then. And I love it. And it's definitely changed who I am as a person. It's, I've learned so much about the world and myself. And I couldn't have written this book if I didn't have that prayer ritual. So that important. So without that prayer ritual, in, in essence, even with all your other successes, and there are numerous amounts and all of your awareness and all of the ways that you connect people, there is something about the Judaism and the ritual of how you incorporate that into your life that kind of brought it all together and kind of gave you the ability to write about being great. It sounds I, like at least. I personally have found, first of all, let me say something that I've never said publicly before. I think Christian Drum roll. Christianity and Judaism is the same religion. I think that Jesus was the first Reformed Jew. That's all I can mm-hmm. He's the father of Jewish reform movement. I think that the banishment of Jesus that happened at that time by, you know, Jews who were in power at that time was a political move. And I think in that banishment and intolerance, Christianity was created. And I think that Christians are all reformed Jews and they don't know it, right? And it's amazing how many times I talk to people about their own religion, Christianity, and, and I talk about Jesus as a Jew, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. I said, have you read the New Testament? And Because it's the whole first page of the New Testament is dedicated towards making people understand the lineage between King David, the king of the Jews, mm-hmm. and Jesus. And so, you know, it's one of the great, I think, um, misses in the world this chasm between Christians and Jews. And I think um, the world is not better off for it. And I think it's suffering terribly, both Christians who have been disconnected from their roots and and the roots that I love and that I talk about that I think inform my book, and Jews who are disconnected from everything that I think Jesus stood for, which I think is beautiful, beautiful things, and disconnected from their brethren and, uh, in the Christian world. And I think this it's a root of a lot of problems in the world, and, and I wish it could be healed. I believe it should be healed. So it's, that was so interesting to hear you say that. And and throughout the book, the message of connection, right, and bringing people from, not judging people, and, and, and bringing people together was such a theme throughout this. And one of the things, I, and I'm going to say this on the podcast, and my husband's probably going to kill me, but one of the things when he told me about your book, that you had written one, he was so excited because all he kept saying is, you don't understand. He's going to be your best guest because he brings people together. He's like a Pied Piper. He makes everything so easy to understand. Everybody like loves hearing Ethan speak and on a topic that he's so passionate about, like he's such a great guy. And then, you know, over the years, I've heard about a lot of the stories about the old days back at your original company where you guys met. And I'm not saying it on the podcast just because I'm not saying it on the podcast. And then in the book, you talked about some of the strategies that you've used to bring people together and to connect. And I noted that it's such an amazing quality to have, 
but it's so the antithesis of what so many like CEOs and execs actually do and the way that they run their company. Can you tell the readers, because I've read the book, but they haven't yet, some of the, the fun things that you did to bring connection into your work life and your personal life? I'd be delighted to. But before I do that, I might comment on the last thing you just said, which is it's so different than what we think of and what we experience in our world, whether leaders, right? Mm -hmm. Leaders, there's a lot of reasons why we're off in this kind of horrible path as a society that we're in today. And one of them is not demanding leaders who actually have leadership qualities. And we don't understand what that is, but I would say healing. And bringing people together is the probably number one prerequisite to being a decent leader, right? If you don't have that, I mean, you should be disqualified immediately. And obviously, that would disqualify many, many, many of the leaders that we all know in the public yep. domain, whether they be political or corporate or otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. What could, could be church leaders and synagogue leaders. It's We need leaders who are speaking to us as a congregation. Again, it could be political, it could be corporate, it could be spiritual, who who have the love for everyone together and who really are understanding that we're all in this world and this journey with unique journeys, but they have to kind of live together. We have to figure out a way to live together and and not polarizing and not demonizing. I think one of the great things about democracy is the ability to listen to people who have different life experiences and therefore different beliefs informed by those experiences. So I don't view, let's say, right or left as being better or worse. I think that the tension and the discussion and debates between right and left will ensure we find the right middle ground. We need the right push and pull. We're missing that today for a lot of reasons, but it's very sad to see that we're missing that today. And Mm -hmm. I've always endeavored to be someone who tries to bring joy to people and joy can only be found when there's a healing and a togetherness. So with that little preamble, I'll get to the answering your question. In my, in my book, I do reveal a lot of the lessons that I've learned and practices I've been able to put in place to be a good leader. A bubble of joy probably is the one that comes to mind first. It's, mm-hmm. it's probably one of my favorite chapters. And if I were picking the first chapter by my favorite one, it was competing for being the first chapter. And so look, bubble of joy. The only thing, as I say in my other parts of my book, that defines our life is our time. It's it's the only thing we have. It is our life, our time. So here we are sharing our life together this hour with with those who listen to us. And we have an obligation to bring our best to that experience for the benefit of each other and for the benefit of anybody who invests their hour listening to this. And I'm cognizant of that, right? Well, I'm cognizant of time with respect for myself and my time and my respect for everyone else who's with me's time. And if we're on a journey together, let's whether it be this podcast or, or a business effort that we're engaged in together, there should be joy in that time. Because if you don't have joy in your time, you don't have joy in your life. And I think that too many people, they hold their lives to too low of a standard. They expect too little of themselves and they're willing to accept inferior lives as a result where they might say, my work sucks and I'm going to try to kind of make up for it in the few hours I'm not at work. Let me just explain something to you that for most people, 
work is the large majority of their waking hours. So if the if your work sucks because it's not fun, it's not joyful, then you know what? Your life is probably not joyful. And it's mm-hmm. the saddest thing you could ever think about. So I knew this from a young age. I observed it in different companies I worked for. Some companies, very rarely, really made it joyful to come to work. And most companies try to squash whatever joy you might mm-hmm. be able to find. And I said, when I'm the boss, I'm going to learn my lessons and I'm going to create a joyful platform where it's fun to be there for everyone. And that becomes attractive because the best people want to be in that bubble of joy. The clients all want to do business within that bubble of joy. And everyone will pay a price, which makes more money, by the way, to be in your bubble of joy, right? So Mm -hmm. smart. And of course, as I say in the book, the biggest beneficiary is you because it's joy. You're living in a bubble of joy. Who who wouldn't want to live their life in a bubble of joy? I say a lot, a day without laughter is a day lost. And there's for me, there's nothing better than pure, unadulterated, belly laughing, coming like viscerally. And wow. And I laugh even just thinking about it. For me, because you know I have no filter, most of the time, the things I'm laughing about are coming at very inappropriate times and places and all that. But that's, to me, what makes it even funnier. And I can recount in my head certain scenarios that are kind of my go-to if I am having a bad moment or like if I'm in a moment where like I'm not that great, right? And it's the laughter and the joy that brings me up. Um, so I, I love your bubble of joy. I, I want to be in your bubble of joy. I think our listeners want to be in your bubble of joy also. And I think it is really important because it, it's a blessing. Again, no pun intended with our Judaism and practicing what lifts us up. But a life without joy, a life without laughter is not a joyful one, I suppose. It's not a great life, right? No. Not, well, it's certainly, if you're not choosing... I guess if you're not choosing joy, then how does that fit in with greatness? And I guess it's the antithesis. So to the listeners, make sure joy is on that list. Make sure you're laughing every day for sure. One other thing I want to say, and I'm going to throw it back to Dr. Boca for another question, though, is kind of just a follow-up to your point on time. We love time here, too, and we're incredibly respectful of time of others, time of ourselves. For me, I tie that in with respect. To me, there's a direct link. If you're late, you don't have respect. And I have my own issues with that because I grew up in a world where five minutes early was on time. And if you were on time, you were late, whether it was a manicure or you had a meeting with the president. I took it incredibly seriously. And it's left me in a position now where I call it hurry up and wait. Mm -hmm. And I can't stand that. So I have to kind of wipe that chip off my shoulder when I meet people because Dr. Boga has helped me realize that Time may not be very valuable to others the way that it is to yourself. So that's number one. The other thing is, is I always love learning too. And and I am a student of the world. One thing amongst many that I learned in your book and Dr. Boga agreed with me on this. (laughs) I try to pride myself as somewhat of a wordsmith and I, you know, love kind of coming up with my own little analogies and whatnot. I had no idea, Ethan, that highway robbery was tied in to time or the lack thereof or losing time. In almost 52 years of my life, I paused and I said, huh, 
That's what highway <laughs> robbery means. So and I did thank the same. you for that. <laughs> yes, thank you. And, you know, we're talking about joy and time, which, and I have the same issue with time. So that's why Rachel and I get along so well. But going back to the joy, I, you know, I was on a trip to Israel and my whole goal of being there was to find joy, right? That was like my intention. And I did, and it was amazing. But one of the things that Rachel and I have discussed previously on the podcast is which is better or which would we choose, which is, would we choose peace or happiness, right? And I throw that question out to you, Ethan, because I'm curious just from your, just from the way that you are and the evolution that you have, I'm curious what your answer would be because Rachel and I are, mine and Rachel's unpolished answer for our listeners is one thing, but I'm curious what you would say to that. I think that there's a context that needs to be given to that question because you know, is it peace in the world or is it peace in my home? Peace in your home is, by the way, one of the most important things, right? If Absolutely. You don't have, that's a big problem, right? Peace in the world is, I think, antithetical to the way the world has been set up, right? So I think that I'm not looking to, um, I think, bringing peace to the world. I, th- I think thinking about that is a little bit complicated. I think that I like um, freedom. I would pick freedom as the third choice. I would rather pick freedom over peace or happiness. And uh, that's my number one thing. Okay. And you wrote a chapter or, or part of a chapter on freedom. And why I say part of a chapter is because like um, Rachel observed the N being capitalized in one of the sentences for nature. We both realized that freedom was the one chapter that was not actually a chapter. It was solely a poem. And we were both intrigued by that and wanted to ask why freedom being a poem, why that poem? And obviously everything you do has some intention behind it as we're learning more and more through this podcast. So what was the intention behind that? Well, I like writing and I have my whole life. And I had written poetry and sometimes I just get in the mood to write a poem. I'm not a poet. Okay. And it's very rare and usually happens in cycles. Like there's just a moment in time where I kind of feel like writing a poem. And then over the course of the next few weeks, I write a few. And then I'll go years without writing a poem. And it just doesn't even dawn on me. And the editor who worked on my book, I said to him, I had written a few poems that I think I'm pretty, are on point with this book. And I think I'm pretty proud of. So he said, send them to me. And I sent them to him and he said, for sure they belong in the book, you know, and it would make your book even more unique, which I, I of course, love, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're jamming a poem into the middle of chapters and and I think it's cool, right? And so the Freedom Poem captured, it's a challenge, like it's just written as a challenge. Like, okay, you really think you like freedom? Examine yourself. Examine whether you really act in a way that is consistent with saying you love freedom. I think I think too many people say they want something, whether it, they want to achieve excellence in their field, or they want to be a great parent, or they want to be a great friend, or they want to live a free life. And then you see the choices they made, and they're so inconsistent mm-hmm. with their words. Mm-hmm. And I tell my kids, you know, I'm not really paying attention to your words. I'm looking at your your actions or your investment of time, which is your life. Words are nothing. They mean zero. And so my freedom chapter was both a passionate love for freedom or expression of a passionate love by me and a 
in your face challenge to the reader to say, okay, dude, or do deaths. <laughs> do you really, I know you say you love freedom, but do you really love freedom? Do you have the courage? Because it requires courage to pursue a free life. And do you really have the courage to do that? I love that answer. And I love that the way that you answered Dr. Boca's initial question of peace or happiness, you tied it in with freedom. And if I can be so presumptuous, the three of us are on the same wavelength then, because that's where we were coming from when we both read that chapter and it stuck out to us. It's like, wow, freedom is such a powerful topic that you kind of have to just take pause and really think about it. And that is how we felt too about the big picture of breaking down something as big as peace, happiness, and whatever context you want to put that in. So I appreciate your explanation on that, which kind of leads me into another topic that's that's pretty big. And in my interpretation is complicated. So I'm wondering what your take is on this, Ethan. Dr. Boca and I talk a lot about, can you have it all? And can you have it all, all the time? Or you can have it all, but at different points of your life. And I want to kind of tie that in with sacrifice and risk and taking chances and fear and life and death. And we'll get to duality in a bit. That's a whole nother section. That's a whole nother thing. And I have a lot to say on it. But we are not able to really pinpoint what the answer is on the can you have it all piece because we know sacrifice plays a big role. And you divulge in the book, you know, you're divorced and remarried. And I wonder, and I know if I wonder, I'm sure the listeners wonder too, whether it's professional success, personal success, where the ebbs and flows come in, where where you have to sacrifice in order to get it all. Well, I think all. So let's start with all. I think when people say, can I have it all? The most important thing is to first examine yourself and ask yourself, what is all for you? And really, really for you, not how the world might look at you because you had a Rolls Royce or you were CEO of a company, but not anything informed by outside or external influences, but just looking in the mirror, meditating and writing, taking, I'm a big believer, by the way, in thinking and taking notes for myself. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. my quiet time. So take notes for yourself. Ask yourself the question, what is all for me? And literally write them down on a piece of paper or on your phone, and then look at each one and ask yourself, why do I want that? Like, what is driving me to put that on my list? So that's a really important first step in answering this question. It's like, what is my all? And and challenging myself to think, why do I want that? And digging deep, am I proud that I want that? Is that consistent with whom I want to be? Or is it really external? And then I throw that in the garbage. Bit. Okay, but but if I may, textbook and taking notes and then, you know, do as I say is different than the real life. If I'm a 21-year-old kid and I want to be successful, which we can probably have a whole nother podcast on defining success, but I want to be married. I want to be a parent. I want to be someone in society. And for the right reasons, I don't mean for the keeping up with the Joneses, but for all intents and purposes. Yeah, yeah career, family. And and a lot of us, Ethan, we can't do it all at once. It's something has had to give in -hmm. order to get. I think that there's having it all and then there's having it all at the same time. Yeah. Well, that's my point. I would say that having it all at the same time is not possible. Just start with that. 
Okay, I appreciate that honesty. Then I think you have to say, and this is also, I'm sorry to jump around, but one of my chapters is entitled Advice Giving is Senseless. Mm -hmm. An understanding that a 62, which is how old I am, a 62-year-old man has lived a certain life and is at a certain stage where if a young man or woman graduating college or business school says to me, here's my situation, what should I do? Well, what I should do, Ethan Penner, or how I might answer that question, because not only am I much older, but I'm also a different human being with a different life journey, with different capabilities and different shortcomings, I don't have a right to answer that question. Like, So I don't. I used to, and I don't anymore, because I realize that I'm not in a position to give them the right answer. Everyone has to find the answer for themselves. So that's why I started the answer with this self-examination. You need to know your priorities and they're unique to you. You own them. You're proud of them. You don't have to apologize for them. You know, someone might rightly say, I want to be the next Michael Jordan, or I want to be the next blah, 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 or I want to achieve that level, whatever that is, and know that there's a path to that, by the way, for those kind of things that involve almost blind sacrifice where you shut everything else out for some period of time. And you say to yourself, now, if you're thinking straight, I'm not going to have a family. I'm not going to have kids because if I try to do that while I'm doing that, it's going to be a mess, right? And so, mm-hmm. again, it's about understanding there's not a right or wrong answer. Like you, I don't look at people who say, I want to be the best in something. I want to achieve incredible success in something. And therefore, I'm not going to be in a family. I'm not going to have kids. I admire that choice. It's honest, right? Mm-hmm. But it's well thought out. I think I wasn't that smart. You know what I mean? Like when I, when I was young, I had dreams of being super successful in the working world. And I tried to do it all. I tried to have a wife and kids. And, you know, I can tell you with experience, that's not possible. You can't be the best in something. And also Michael Jordan, by the way, learned that he got divorced with kids too, because mm-hmm. The pursuit of his career got in the way of his ability to actually be a decent partner in life and a family man. And I mean, in life, you can't have it all at once, but you can't have it all. You just have to know you can't have it all at once. And then can you have it all? Look, I, I think a lot of kids, boys, I'm a boy, so I understand boys' dreams probably <laughs> better than girls. I dreamed of being a professional athlete. I dreamed of being an actor. I dreamed of being a lot of things. And at some point down, as at different points in life, you realize you're not going to be this and you're not going to be that. And if you're honest with yourself, you cry a little because a little part of you died, a little dream died. Mm-hmm. But that's part of maturity is knowing, okay, well, I really can't have everything. You know what I mean? Like I'm only living one run in this life. And if I'm going to be the best or try to be the best or try to be the best I can be in something, I can't also be an actor and a baseball player too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you say goodbye to certain parts of you, certain, your dreams are parts of you and you say goodbye to them and you shed a tear and maybe light a candle and then you move on and you just say, okay, well, I, I kind of realize I can't do that. Well, and it also sounds like you're living proof that you never knew when you walked into your first job that you were ever going to be as successful as you were and be the, what we we always joke about the, now the grandfather, it used to be the father of CMBS, right? And the, the industry, all the way to being an author, right? Because of different stages of your life, you got to different places, but I'm not 
sure that those were actually your dreams when you first started. You didn't even know it existed. Right. Here's the thing. I think that I'll make two comments about that. One, I always was, I always dreamed very big dreams. And I'll remember I, I hired, you know, Tony and I worked together. He worked for me. I became very good friends with Tony, but I became, I hired friends and I, I hired people I liked and mm-hmm. I became good friends with many of them. Some of the people I hired were literally childhood friends and people generally don't like how, hiring childhood friends. And I used to tell them, listen, if you suck, I'm going to have to fire you. <laughs> if that costs us our friendship, so be it. But, but I want to give you the chance and I don't want to not give you the job that you're qualified for just because we're friends. This is a good thing for your career. One of my childhood friends took me aside once at the pinnacle of my fame on Wall Street and said, I want to ask you a question, Ethan. Um, when you were in high school, did you think you were going to be this successful because nobody else did? <laughs> <laughs> And and I said, you know, I kind of did, actually. Mm-hmm. It goes, wow, really? No, I didn't know what it would be, but mm-hmm. I knew in my heart I was special and had the capacity to really achieve something great. And I was dedicated towards that. I didn't know it would be, you know, real estate or mortgage finance or Wall Street. I had no idea because I had no background in any of that. But I knew I was committed to achieving something special and something great. And I knew I had that capability. So I, I, the answer is I did know that I had something in me special and I was going to I was committed to making that happen. Later in life, you know, when I had achieved enough success, I'm not big on Groundhog Day. I think that's an interesting thing to mention here is that Groundhog Day is, you know, of course, a movie, mm-hmm. um, Bill Murray movie, which I thought was fascinating and smart. You relive the same day every day, right? It's mm-hmm. Groundhog Day every day. I think that people don't make their lives either joyful, we spoke about that, but also don't challenge themselves to make their life interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also the absence of joyfulness, right? Joyfulness mm-hmm. is also related to, am I interested in my own life or am I boring the shit out of myself, right? And I really try not to bore the shit out of myself, you know what <laughs> I mean? And I take responsibility for that. I don't put that responsibility on other people to amuse me or set a course for my life that's interesting to me. I do that for myself and I'm willing to live my life courageously and walk away from things that most people wouldn't walk away from, like my career on Wall Street, because I did it. You know, okay, great. I was really lucky and uh, I worked hard, but I was also lucky. And I had this great run at a very young age of my career. And by the time I was 39, I had said, you know what? I'm done and I'm out of here. And I ended up moving to Hawaii and who would have done that? Like who, I don't know, another human being who would have walked away from the pinnacle of Wall Street career, the top of the top of the top at 39 and said, I don't need any more of this. I've tasted this. It's, I want to taste something else. And I don't even know what I want to taste. I just know that I don't want to eat vanilla ice cream anymore. I've been enough vanilla ice cream. I love that. And I feel as though obviously you're a risk taker in the best possible way. Maybe, you know, it's calculated and and you're you're mitigating poor risk by taking chances and thinking outside of the box, not boring yourself, as you said. And my takeaway on that kind of circles back to when I noticed the chapter on nature and that you capitalize the N in nature. And that was another moment when I took pause. Because the appreciation of the enormity of nature that so many people don't pay attention to, I related with because I'd like to think of myself as someone with broad range and not getting 
bored of myself, even though sometimes I joke like everywhere I go, there I am. I can't get out of my own way. But so many people, to your point earlier, that they don't have self-esteem or they're not self-aware or they don't find joy. They don't have their own bubble in their job. And I'm guilty of that too. I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm the first one to say, oh, work sometimes, but I know it's a means to an end. And that's why we have these passion things that that hedge our bets. But nature, and I think it's just such a great example of just how big the opportunity of life is because it is ever-changing. No day is the same. And it it's what we make of it. Would you agree with that? I agree. I mean, nature is just inspiring in every possible way and reminds us of how how beautiful and perfect the world really is. I think that this is something that I touched upon in the book, too. And for me, I kind of had this epiphany or observation, and I shared it in the book, that really people fall into one of two camps. And I think the large, giant majority fall into the wrong camp on this one which is, do you see the world as divinely inspired and therefore perfect, everything about it, including all the bad and all the challenges, Mm -hmm. or do you see this world as random and not perfect and not designed divinely? I think if you're in that second category, which is where I think the large giant majority are, then I think you have a very hard time making sense of your life or the world around you and you find yourself with a vic- at some point wearing the victim mentality. I did. You know, like I didn't find this until that prayer ritual that I spoke of five or six years ago. So mm-hmm. there was a part of me. Well, I actually I found it a little bit before that. So when I left Wall Street, it was in a very painful betrayal situation. I didn't have to leave Wall Street, but I decided to. But I broke, I, I had my heart broken by people that I trusted. And it was very, very, very painful. And I saw myself as a victim of bad behavior by bad people. And I I wore that victimhood for about a year or two. And every time I was asked to tell the story of my departure from this company that Tony and I worked at, I couldn't tell the story without tears welling up in my eyes, tears of self-pity. Mm. And... It was debilitating. I couldn't move forward in a functional way because I was consumed with victim mentality, as I think too many people in the world are today. There's nothing worse, nothing worse than a victim story that you're telling yourself. Nothing. And I went just quite by accident. One of my sisters-in-law had gone to a seminar and she said, you would love this. You should go. And she didn't really know my story. She wasn't really telling me for any healing reason other than she had a great experience herself. It was random. And I figured they were in LA and I'll go. And I went. And the main message was, and it came from her in the beginning in a very powerful way, you can tell yourself whatever story you want to tell yourself. And so everything happens. And yes, there's a victim in you in that story, but it's not the only part of the story. You contributed too. Either you did something or you didn't do something or you could have done something different that would have changed the outcome. So rather than tell yourself the story about how you've been victimized by bad people, why don't you look at it through the other lens and say, what did I do? What didn't I do? Or what could have I done differently to bring about a different outcome? And that changed my whole life. 
And mm-hmm. it allowed me to tell my story without tears welling up in my eyes. I realized how debilitating self-pity was. I'd forgotten. I learned this mm-hmm. lesson when I was young and I'd forgotten. Yeah. And my life has never been the same since. And I've been able to live again as I had prior in a very bold and very aware and very kind of joyful state. I think pity, self-pity eliminates the possibility of all those things. So mm-hmm. when someone is hurting, sometimes my wife tells me I'm not empathetic or I'm not sensitive. And what she's misinterpreting is I'm unwilling to say the words that will feel pity or self-pity. Mm-hmm. I have no pain. And not okay. because I don't love them, not because I don't, I don't care about their pain, is because I want to lift them up and bolster their strength in that moment rather than cater to their weakness and their pity. With self-pity. I think the listeners, w- when they read the book, and remember mm-hmm. everyone, the book, of course, is Greatness is a Choice. The chapter you wrote about empathy and sympathy, and when you learned it at a young age with the bicycle incident, which we don't have to retell because we want the listeners to go out and buy the book, but it's a great story. And it really does give a real clear path as to why empathy, you're all about sympathy, no way. And we're not going to buy into the victim mentality. And I, and, and, and I love that chapter, by the way. Yeah, it was a, it was a great chapter and one that we talk about all the time obviously in the mental health field because there is a real big difference between sympathy and empathy. Um and you know throughout this entire thing I mean every time you open your mouth Ethan I have a question, right? I could ask 800 different questions of you and there one of the things though that I keep coming back to is look I've been on the periphery of this industry for a very long time just by you know being married to my spouse and it is the complete antithesis of my career and my career choices and the way that my brain thinks and what I understand. And even after as many years as I've been married, I can't even tell you what my husband actually does for a living. He's tried with sugar packets to try to explain it to me and it doesn't really work. But what I always go back to is this assumption and we're learning and don't make judgments and, you know, let's not go in that direction. We have to just kind of keep our eyes and heart and everything open. But as the psychologist in me, I have always said this, that there is a very fine line between a successful, powerful Jewish man and a narcissist, right? And I used to say to my therapist in my training, I'm like, I'm not so good at figuring out that line sometimes, right? It is a fine line. And I guess what I'm most impressed about through the book and just having hearing you speak is that the vast majority of the people in your industry would have never left Wall Street, would have thought that they could destroy the next person that came along and make it better and do more and, you know, get on that treadmill and go with that type A mentality and really just not have the self-esteem because we all know that what's behind narcissism is really a a wounded, wounded, broken self-esteem. So, are you surprised that there's so many questions in there, but it's, I'm so surprised that you didn't go that route and not to say that you are a narcissist by any means. That is not what I'm implying, but you have the ability to be introspective, think about these things, you know, leave whether it was feeling like the victim, but you got out of that and so many people can't. So is there like a secret sauce you can give? Do you know what that fine line is? And obviously I know textbook fine line, but would you agree that you're an anomaly in many respects? There's a simple answer. I think a lot of times people use the word narcissist or narcissism incorrectly. It's a, it's like yes. a, 
a label that gets thrown around recklessly, I think, in our society. Well, it's like the new word of of the of the recent Today? decade. <laughs> yeah. so I'm I'm very proud of the person I am. I'm very confident about myself, and because I'm committed to complete honesty, I will not express myself when asked with false modesty because that's a form of dishonesty. So, because I'm committed to honesty, and because I actually am proud of the person I've become and, and the accomplishments I've had. Sometimes people do say, oh, narcissist, you know, that's just an easy one, right? So one day I asked my friend, who is a, a very, very, very good therapist, and I said to him, uh, Marcus, am I a narcissist? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you asked the question. Right. You're not. Right. You're not. And he, and he said to me, you're the least narcissistic person I've ever met. And I said, well, why would you say that? I'm trying to understand what this all means. And he said, well, a narcissist doesn't care for others. You spend almost all your time caring for others. And so I think that's a very simple explanation and a very simple way to hang your hat on this thing. I think that a person who spends their time thinking about themselves and their needs all the time is doomed to have a bad life. And I'm not, you know, I don't have a thing about narcissists or not narcissists. I figured this out, like I've been mm -hmm. taught by teachers. Tony Robbins is a really good teacher in this one field, and I learned it from him. This one thing is like, okay, when you think about your life, if you're answering the question of, has your life been a good life, through the lens of your own accomplishments and what you provided for yourself and maybe your family, you're miserable. If you answer that question, through the lens of what have I done for the world? What have I brought of value to others? Well, man, then you're really happy. That's mm -hmm. best happiness. So narcissists are not narcissists. I just love that way of thinking. You told a story in the book, and I don't want to really ruin it for the listeners, but it was one of your mentors as he was dying, and he shared something with you. You know, here was this successful individual. I, and you can I won't spoil it, but I will say that I've met many, 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 many people because of the good fortune I had in my life to be extremely high-level player on Wall Street, I met my heroes. I met the famous people, all the famously wealthy and powerful. And I have to say, that was a bit upsetting to me because I had to recalibrate who it is I wanted to be with my life. I, I grew up poor. I had dreams. I was a student of the business world. I had names of people in my mind of who were my heroes and then I got to meet them all. And I was like, my God, as I got to know their personal lives and what a wreck their lives had been mm -hmm. pretty much. And the, as you said earlier, the sacrifices they made to be who they were. And I thought, man, I've got to really rethink my dreams and my goals. I can't become that. And so that was a bit disabling for me mm -hmm. and caused me to leave Wall Street and caused me to go in search of a different future for myself. And I'm a searcher, you know, like I have in my heart of hearts, this self-esteem, this belief in God and belief that I'll be okay. I grew up in a small two-bedroom apartment in Yonkers. My mother had a bedroom, my brother and I shared one, and we all shared a bathroom. And I had so much fun as a kid. I had such mm -hmm. a beautiful life. So I don't have any fear of poverty. You know, poverty mm -hmm. was very, very good and better than the life of most of the people I knew who were uber rich. So I think all that has helped me in my life, helped me make good choices. 
Yeah. And again, you, you're not looking at yourself as a victim. A lot of people would have chosen to look at this being poor and growing up in a divorced home and all of this and say that they were a victim of something. And so kudos to you that you're not there. More episodes than I can recount, Ethan, Dr. Boke and I have have tried to tap into that life is not black and white. It's not a yes or no, that there's so much gray matter. And that's something that she's tried to help me on in countless conversations. And I'm getting there. I'm getting there. You are. And you are. I, I will thank you. But the duality chapter completely jumped out at me. The fact that life, it's not so linear. We have ebbs and flows and there isn't just black and white and there isn't just right and wrong. And you can't have birth without death. And there is no reward without the risk. And the fact that you, throughout the entire book, you spoke to me as someone who's just this creature of positivity. And then I come to find out that you had chapters on being cynical and cynicism. And that you talked about the Milgram study, which the readers can read that chapter on their own. But I was so appreciative of your willingness to be vulnerable enough to share that that's part of life and it's okay. And if I could just read one little paragraph that you wrote so beautifully that spoke to me and share with the listeners. Okay, on page 66 of the chapter titled Duality, you write, I'm embracing duality. It is tempting to conclude that there is no black and white, only gray. But even that cannot be true. And the opposite of that must be considered and accepted. For if there is truly no black and white, then there are no truths. And without truths, one cannot live. There are truths which are black and white. Yet there are also many, many contradictions in life, each with kernels of truth that flicker like the stars in the sky from bright to dark. That is the essence of duality, which seems to be the essence of life on earth. And on behalf of myself and Dr. Boca, being a lover of nature and feeling that the world has so much to offer us, and I feel so small when I know how big the ocean is and the stars and that we're so lucky to be here and be a part of it. And the way that you captured some of my mischagas that like, it doesn't have to be all or none. And I want to thank you for that. I don't know if you want to touch on it or add to it, but it's an important chapter and lesson. First of all, thank you for reading that and capturing that. It almost moved me to tears. (laughs) really because i have this ability to kind of live outside my body and just not like observe my life and things disconnected from it that was probably the best piece of literature i've ever produced that one (laughs) one paragraph (laughs) and we noted it and that's the one i highlighted so what Mm -hmm. does that say i mean am i the narcissist that i picked that out or i mean hello super cool i I'm glad, you know, you made me focus on it in a way because you read it all by itself rather than I've never read it as other than as part of that chapter and as part Mm -hmm. of the book. And and that, you know, I always dreamed as a writer, if you ask me, like, what do you, what do you hope to be? Who are your role models? Mm -hmm. Well, there are people who were like brilliant, brilliant novelists and yet brilliant philosophers, uh, Herman Hesse being my favorite one, probably. And I always said, gee, you know, that's real writing. You know, when you can tell a story and embed great philosophy in a beautiful story with rich tapestry and great characters, 
that's writing, right? You know, mm-hmm. what I wrote, I think I, I think I did a really, really good job of communicating. It's my books, like you said at the very beginning when we started, it's almost like a modern day Bible, but it's not really, it's not really um, a story, right? There's no story. Mm-hmm. There's no. stories in here, but it's not a. Big, they're nuggets. They're just yeah, they're, nuggets of your truth. Fiction, yeah, it's a fictional story, and I think fiction writers are real great writers. That one piece that you just read, that makes me think maybe I actually have the ability to, to write at all the time. That was pretty good. Well, could I write your forward if you do write a book based on that? <laughs> that would be great. It's going to be very unpolished if she does. But I just want to tell you, even if you want to hear more of your stuff, I actually printed out, if you go to, I think it was Amazon and you look at the reviews, one of the yeah. people who reviewed you took, it might be someone you no, and I think they alluded to that, but they picked out quotes from the book that were so powerful also. So it, yeah, so it might be worth, and one of them they captured that I was drawn to also, which was the perception of risk is just an illusion. And it went on to talk about how you said there is little real downside. You will either get what you need in that relationship or you will be liberated from a futile situation and free to find your path to fulfillment. The key is maintaining a commitment to following through with cutting ties unless there is change on the other side. And I think that throughout the book, for me, that one, because I sometimes I'm risk averse and I'm sometimes I I overanalyze it and I overthink it and whatever. And I'm sure if I'm doing it, our listeners are doing it, but really that there is no real loss, right? You take the risk and there really isn't, as you said, there's really no downside to it. So that one stood out for me, not as much as the duality, but pretty darn close. What you just talked about, Dr. Boca, is tied to this. I mentioned it before and I want to go back because it's so important. Do you see the world as being divinely perfect or do you think there's a randomness or heavily randomness to it and nature? And I think that it's only when we look at nature, including the biology of our body, do we really see that there's some really incredible intelligent design mm-hmm. to this whole thing. And then when we start to pay attention to our own lives, because that's what we know best, and we start to look at not the good, but the bad, like what happened wrong in our life? What didn't come our way? What dreams didn't happen? What disappointments or betrayals or whatever it is, because we all have lives like that. That everything is virtual, every life is filled with the same stuff. And if we start to ask ourselves, what was the good in that? What did I need from that? How did that propel me forward? The bad, not the good. Mm-hmm. Then we start to see that everything that happens to us, particularly the bad, everything that comes our way is like being directed to us in some sort of a magical way. It's exactly what we needed to remind us of a shortcoming that we need to grow past. And then we see that there is perfection in our life because, God, it's amazing how that thing came at me. And then I didn't learn the lesson. And so six years or six months later, I got another in the head, the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, these are not coincidences. There is divine perfection. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when when people, you know, praise God for the good, and then blame the devil for the bad. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, is there a God or is there not a God? And mm-hmm. I talked about this about very religious people. And I said, do you believe in God? Do you really believe? And they said, well, I think so. Like, I ask rabbis that all the time. And I said, really? Well, you know, what about anti-Semitism, for example? Is that, do you believe God created that? 
Well, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. Well, either a God is responsible for everything or there is no God. That's the way right. I see it. Yeah. And so, so when things happen bad or there are things about the world that are, we don't like, I think it's instructive to just say, well, what is the benefit of that? Like, what is the purpose of that? And mm-hmm. we were all created in God's image, supposedly. So it allows us to ask ourselves the most important question. If we were God, what would be the purpose of this thing here? Like, why would have we created this? And that allows us to see it through the right prism, I think. So, and then getting back to the the whole topic of duality, life is duality, right? There's duality that's embedded in almost every facet of life. And I use a number of very obvious examples in the book. What was coming in my head as you were talking about God, one of my biggest takeaways from when I was in Israel and my own personal growth with my own Judaism is imunah, which means faith. And that we learn that the work that we do, this ritualistic work and and whatever our tie-in to our daily belief system with God and our own relationship, building that muscle of strength, building that faith and imunah, it may be easy and, you know, when we're riding the trajectory up, but when then we're hit with something and now we're on the downtrain, that's when really the imunah comes in, that faith to say, what is the lesson and what am I, all the buildup, we use the analogy of lifting weights. If the weight that we're lifting to build the muscle of strength while we're riding high, then we should be in good shape to use it when we need it, when life throws us a curveball. And then you start questioning why. You talk about it in the book in so many different ways about how we shouldn't hire people who are not capable of doing their job because that's just setting them up to not be able to be resilient so that they're not going to have faith when the shit hits the fan, right? And all of these things, there are so many points to that throughout the book that you do have to, it's those bad times where you do have to have that muscle and it has to be working and you do have to have faith, which brings us all the way back to the beginning, which was we don't teach this in secular society, right? And that's why I asked you from the beginning, do you think you would be this great without having that belief and that faith in religion? And I do believe that there is something that helps with the acceptance of, I'm going to say defeat, but in those bad moments, when you're grounded in something and you have a munah, faith, whatever words we want to use, a belief in God, a belief in that this all happens for reasons, it gives you the courage, it gives you the strength, it allows you to take the risk, it brings you back to where you need to go and you know you're going to be in homeostasis and okay. I think that's correct. There's a lot of ways to get to courage, right? And living a bold and courageous life. I think an understanding or even a questioning of who you are and why you're here and how'd you get here. And then understanding that it's all a mystery and it's all got an end, right? There's an end coming and we don't know where the end is. And so what do you have to lose, right? Like, you know, people fight so hard to live another day, right? Or to whatever. And they're not even thinking about what are they afraid of? They're deathly afraid of death. Mm-hmm. without knowing what that even means and what life really means. Like, what are you fighting to preserve, really? The, I mean, so here's one of the things that when I do public speaking, I do like to create some awareness around. We are not our body. I say, this is my body. Well, there's a possessive to that, right? So who is the me and the my body? It's obviously not my body. My body is there for biological reasons to allow me to walk around on earth safely, to to preserve life. And in fact, the body has urges that it needs to say, keep me safe. So 
what I noticed is that most people devote most of their life, if not all of their life, slavishly to satisfy the body's messages to stay alive. So the body needs food and shelter. We work our asses off to make money so that we have food and shelter. The body urge to procreate. We serve that master for two. The body has an urge to go to the bathroom and get rid of waste. We serve that urge too. It's the body, right? What about the person, not the body? What are the urges and needs of the individual human being who is being shielded by the body and who the body is supporting in life, but the body is not living, you're living. You know, you are here inside the body. And so I challenge people, what are you doing for you? What does the you want to do? Because, you know, shitting, fucking, sleeping, and eating is what the body wants to do. Mm -hmm. What are you doing beside that? And if you're not doing anything beside that, then why do you care about life so much? Like, what is it this life you're trying to fight for? And even the urge to live, you know, I'm sure as a therapist, you, you're aware of this, the human, the human need to live another day, right? No matter how terrible life is, mm-hmm. we mostly, 99.9% of us, will do anything to live another day, which is illogical if there's nothing in your life that's If good. you're miserable, exactly. It's illogical, but because we're serving the body's need and the body controls, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think like a lot of these monks you hear about, they go on fasts, they don't speak, they basically deny body, so they become masters of their body. Here's a duality. That sounds very appealing because, well, gee, they become masters of their life and they don't become slaves to their body. And that sounds really cool, except for one thing. They're they're not living in the world God created, right? They're disconnected. (laughs) They're not talking. They're basically isolated on some mountain in Tibet. They don't have sex. They don't eat except for crumbs and water. They become masters of their body, yes, but they're not actually living in the world God created for them. And so it's a duality. Like somehow we've got to do both. We've got to be kind of aware of and serve the needs of our body while we're also living in the world and be kind of mindful of like, what are we doing here? What, who, who are we and why are we here and what are we supposed to be accomplishing? Amazing. Amazing. Thank yeah. you so much. There. Now, I want to be cognizant for our listeners and of you, Ethan, because time is a thing, right? And it's, the, it's everything. The most, it's the most important thing, right? So all we have. It's all we have. Exactly. So if you would play with us a little bit, just to wrap things up a little bit, um, we just have a couple of quick questions that we're going to throw at you, and we know you value honesty. So if you would indulge us, we would appreciate it. We're going to keep them quick. Okay. Your favorite movie? Oh, my favorite movie. That's a good one. I guess I would say um, Casablanca because Rick is my true hero. I've always aimed to be Rick in life. Wow. Okay, cool. And I was going to say who was a hero of yours, so we don't have to do that. A guilty pleasure. Ice cream. Ice cream. Any specific flavor? I actually actually think the person who invented ice cream could very well be the greatest person who ever. (laughs) So that's your hero. The reason I say that is because I think we're greatest when we bring joy to other people. Mm. And who doesn't like ice cream? Who right? doesn't actually eat ice cream on the saddest day of their life and feel a little better? Okay, absolutely, so absolutely. I think that person is the greatest person who ever. Good answer. Yeah, very good answer. Biggest pet peeve. 
and there's quite a few I can think of. <laughs> um, I think uh, inconsiderate people. Okay. And so this one is a yes and no. Throughout the book, you've mentioned a lot of staying neutral on politics, the pros and the cons of politics, what it is doing in our society today. Would you ever run for political office? I won't chase that destiny or that path. I don't believe in chasing a path. Okay. Uh, I, I would never say no to anything. I, found, I feel like the, the river of life has, each life has its own current, right? Mm -hmm. I think being aware of your current and boldly following where that current leads is a path to a good life. If my current led in that direction, it has not until now, I wouldn't be afraid to do it and I wouldn't shy away from doing it. Awesome. That's okay. a beautifully politically correct answer. <laughs> Gotta love it. You're Not right very on unpolished, but good right. answer. You're right on course <laughs> for handling this well. Okay. And the last one, because we are unpolished, we have to ask, what does unpolished mean to you? Real. Love it. Love that, it. That we are, Rach. That we are. No, I love it. And I, and I, and I loved our time and I appreciate all the answers, especially having read the book backwards and forwards. And as we said before, and you reiterated, it is our little bit of Bible and it's a great read. And I really strongly encourage everyone to grab a copy. Greatness is the choice by Ethan Penner. Uh, you will not be let down. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, greatness is not a choice. Okay. You have to read the book and then you'll realize that it's the only choice, right? Exactly. Because who doesn't want to have greatness in their life. I will just add my own little twist on that is that we want our unpolished people out there to choose greatness, to live in greatness, live in purpose. As Ethan so graciously has said, that bubble of joy, there's enough joy for all of us, right? But not at the expense of your unpolishedness, right? Don't lose who you are just to try to chase something as Ethan was saying. <laughs> not joyful if it's not real. Right. Exactly. Polished is real. Remember that. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. Ethan, tell the audience how they can find you should they wish to track you down. Thank you for the opportunity. So I have a website for the book, which is greatintersection.com, because I think intersections where people come together. And intersection is one of the chapters in my book. And greatnessisachoice.com was taken already. So <laughs> greatintersection.com. And there is a club you could join. Click on the, on the, the only thing that gets you is a, a bi-weekly email blast from me, with, which I share my Friday five observations every other week with connections to a vlog. You could respond to that and it would come directly to my email and we could connect that way. I respond, by the way, to written overtures perfectly. I'm very uh, respectful and I respond to everyone. I would love to touch as many people as I can and uh, in person too. You know, like I'm a big believer that the human connection is everything. So you know, we could figure that out at some point. But I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you both today. It was a beautiful conversation. I think you taught me some things as well. And I hope I've been able to communicate myself well to both you and, and your audience. Thank you. We sure have. DB, final thoughts from you? No, uh, Ethan, this was such a pleasure. And I hope there's another book in you. I really do. Or something even more great than this book, because you have kind of figured out that to choose greatness and it's working. So thank you so much for coming on today, sharing all of this with you. I'm sure our, our listeners are going to get the book and they're all going to take little snippets, if not all of it, and incorporate it into their lives. So thank you. 
Absolutely. And we'll put all of your contact information in the episode notes. But to the folks out there, you know how to reach us. If you want to comment, if you have questions, concerns, you can always email us at unpolishedtherapy at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unpolished Therapy. We want to hear from you. We want you to be great. Today was great. We just want greatness for all of us. Ethan, you're amazing. You're great. Dr. Boca, you are great. And just for the purposes of the fact that I am living the book now, I'm great too. So there you go. Thank you to everyone. Have a wonderful week. And we will see you next time when our wheels and yours spin upside down on the corner of audacity and advice. This has been another episode of Unpolished Therapy. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage. <laughs> <laughs>